those three lessons of honor your word, endure through difficulty, and don't let emotions and ego control you, uh, we could probably stop right there in business, and that would solve a lot of wealth issues for human beings. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Shower. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. I have with me today Tom Shea, who is an ex-Navy SEAL who then later got into writing and he wrote a book called Unbreakable, which I read as the lead up to this uh, episode. And we're going to just have a conversation today with Tom about mindset and uh, about some of his experiences as a SEAL. So um, Tom, why don't you, by way of introduction, just tell us a little bit about yourself. That's always the hardest question. I don't like him, him, you know, talking about myself. It's the weirdest thing. Uh, But, you know, uh, I I think I do grace to it. Uh, I was in the SEAL teams for 23 years. I retired uh, about seven and a half years ago. And uh, I had spent a lot of time uh, being in very harsh situations, both physically and mentally and spiritually, if you want to pull the whole gamut together. And I had written a book about those experiences to my kids in 2009 and my wife that the originally originally was titled Spartan woman, because I wanted my kids to know that men don't really succeed well without an equally gifted hard woman. And, uh, that didn't make it past the editors. Uh, but it was a story about what it was like to lead men in combat and be a father and be gone and, and have a lot of emotions that you have to keep in check. And, uh, and then uh, that's, that was kind of the, the, the genesis of Unbreakable and my retirement into the civilian community. Well, for, first of all, I, you know, as an American, thank you for your service, um, especially your service. I mean, you, you guys do the toughest stuff, so I appreciate that very much. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a podcast about the pursuit of wealth and success, or however we define those things. In Unbreakable, you give mindset lessons that can be applied to any walk of life, I assume. Could you summarize, or if that's too vast, give us your top three techniques that our audience can apply to their their quest for their own success? You know, you asked, that's the most interesting way to ask that because I don't see that mindset uh, can be untethered to accomplishment. Most people can't accomplish much without having the mind and the body correlate to each other. And the SEAL teams are great about having both of those be equal. And uh, so you push yourself physically to learn mentally what you're capable of doing. And you push yourself mentally to see what your body's capable of doing. And then you retire. And what I saw in the in the real world space, if you want to call it that, is what's missing is uh, 
leaders learning to play the, a bigger game. And in that bigger game, you have to, you have to have health as a leader. And most people can't sustain the, the making of money or the, the accumulation of wealth over time because they get sick. Literally. That's what I saw. And so what I had initially tried to put into unbreakable were 13 lessons to my kids that found itself in the laps of, uh, I guess, leaders or people who are trying to, to build businesses. And what I learned from that exchange from leaders that were calling me to, Hey, can you teach me what you tried to, what you tried to put in the book? Uh, there become what I think three paramount lessons. And the first lesson is the ability to make a promise and keep it. You think that's easy, but it's very difficult for people to do that. And so in lesson one in Unbreakable, it's the, the ability to make a promise to yourself in the health space of do simple things, which is a push-up, a sit-up, and a, and a, uh, a squat every day for 21 days. And that becomes a challenge. 7,000 people have tried it, and only 58 have been able to do it. It's not that difficult, but it really it's a testament to we're not taught to keep our promises. And in the pursuit of wealth, man, if you can't make a promise and keep it, you struggle. Uh, and the second one is uh, your ability to endure. And, and I think the wealth space endurance is not really taught, taught or talked about. And in the Tom Shea mind, things suck. Endurance sucks. It's hard. It's hard to get up every day. It's hard to produce a business that you want to see thrive and you have a 24 hour space and you feel like you're putting 32 hours into a 24 hour space. So lesson three in the book was the ability to uh, move for 24 hours without quitting on yourself. And I found that to be very interesting. I wish I hadn't put it in the book now because uh, now we do three events a year where people from South Africa and Europe come over to learn how to uh, be on top of your game for 24 hours. And uh, so that was the second lesson that found itself really relevant in the, in the real world. And the third lesson is uh, the ability to not let emotions control you. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of throughout several different lessons after lesson three it's probably intertwined into all 13. Uh, so I've made now business out of teaching people what emotions are for, especially at the leadership level. And cause ego kills business quicker than any aspect. And so those three lessons of honor, your word, endure through difficulty and don't let emotions and ego control you. Uh, we could probably stop right there in business and that would solve a lot of wealth issues for human beings. You know, can I, I, I'm going to throw you a little curveball if you, if you don't mind. Um, are you watching the Olympics? Yes. So can you comment on Simone Biles' decision to not continue? I mean, you know who that is? Yeah, I do. I love, so now the, the answer will probably disturb you. Uh, I don't believe anything I see on TV. Well, of course. I'm not in the, I'm not a fan of uh, the thinking what you see is true. So literally humans cannot comment on Simone Bile. We're not there. And uh, so uh, some other truths about her, she's a veteran competitor. 
things don't actually just collapse in on itself in a two day period of time where you're number one, one in the world and you made no mistakes for an entire year and then it all unravel. So I don't believe what we're seeing and I wouldn't even be able to form a guess of what, what's really going on. And uh, the moment she backs away, other people rise. Uh, so I really, I, she's tough. So yeah. I don't think she fell apart mentally. I think something else is going, is a foot that we can't really comment on. I, I love the stance of reserve judgment. Like, let's just let her deal with her decision and we don't have to comment. I love it. Yeah, no. So I, I guess I also just wanted uh, to pull on something like kind of from the, this comment about emotions and maybe that thread's going to work its way into the rest of the conversation later on. Um, and, you know, I guess in my own way, I, I've, I've struggled with like some, you know, how much do you let emotions interfere with your decision making? How much do you um, space do you give them? And I guess the conclusion that I came to with that is that, you know, emotions are a bit like the weather. You kind of can't stop them from being there, but you don't necessarily have to let them control the decisions you make. And I wonder if that's kind of the conclusion you came to or if you approach, you know, emotional life in a different way. I get the sense that sometimes you you argue to put it a bit more in a box than that. I don't know. Maybe you can say a little bit about what you think. Uh, imagine if emotions are actual tools. So we all have them, but we don't understand their use. So they kind of get used for us and to us. Uh, for instance, the, I don't know if I put it in a box. It's a tool for access to uh, an outcome that's predetermined because all emotional responses to problems predetermine an outcome. So sadness literally leads to physical death. So if you remain sad over time, you're causing the physical outcome of your body to die. So it's a weird response. So sometimes our responses, since we don't, we're not taught them in detail, uh, sadness is not a really great response to things. Somebody dies. Why is that sadness? Why isn't that joy? An 85 year old man who just died, whether he was killed or on a deathbed, say your, your father dies. Why are we not filled with joy? Because imagine living 85 years. So we, we're profoundly, uh, we kind of, we don't understand what emotions are until we thread them into what is the outcome of its use? Like if I was going to be smart, I would want to know what it's supposed to do. Does happiness affect outcome? Happiness keeps you where you are. If you like the way you look and feel, be happy about it, and you will not alter it one, one bit. So that's a weird response to happiness. Don't really feel happy in the middle of tragedy because you won't change anything. Like if you're being stressed out or you're getting shot at, don't feel happy. It's the wrong response. And so when you see emotion causes and taking a look at it, you're like, wow, hmm. It's interesting what they really do if you're not caught in them. And they always fall, they, they arise with a problem. Emotions arrive at the same time with a problem, but your emotional response never uncovers the problem. So it's a weird, it's, I put it into our training. It's actually a six hour block of training. And it's interesting to see how it fleshes out. The mind is a beautiful instrument causes things to happen 
and emotions are like a key. When you turn them on, they really rapidly cause what they're supposed to cause. And in this, in the SEAL teams, you're, you're kind of thrust into understanding them because if you're in a hard, a bad situation and you emotionally respond to it, you're always already dead. So what happens to people who are constantly facing difficult things is they don't emote in the middle of them. They emote later because come to find out emotional responses are never effective. They rarely are like feeling passionate about a boyfriend or girlfriend. It lasts as long as the weather holds and then it changes on Tuesday. And if you marry for passion on Wednesday, you want a divorce. So it's weird how emotions are not really helpful over time. And if they're not controlled, they cause something to happen that you don't want. And that is a beautiful mindset to understand because the mind wants to understand what's in front of it and wants to get educated. And it rarely allows itself to. Okay. Um, and so maybe we can sort of weave this together. So I, I noticed, you know, in your book, you refer a lot to internal dialogue. Um, and so maybe you could explain to us a little bit more what you mean by that. I know, for example, in, uh, you know, Buddhism, there's a certain amount of talk about monkey mind, right? Which is that your uh, internal chatter is sort of always going on. Um, and how might one navigate through that to have an internal dialogue that's productive? Because in my understanding of the mind, there's kind of this radio constantly chattering, and then you sort of select which thoughts you want to identify with. And is that kind of what you mean by internal dialogue, or do you mean something else? You said it more beautifully than I could have said it there. So the words that we say to ourselves inside are more important than what we say outside. So like I may look at you and say, hey, I hate you. I didn't mean that. What I said inside, I couldn't find a way to grow up with, like you get in a fight with your lover, your husband, your boyfriend, and it comes out crappy, but inside there's another language. So what happens internally with language and wording is uh, once you start exposing yourself to it, you see how critical it is and it does have a structure to it. So what comes out of the structure of internal language is be very careful when you use the, the verbiage of am, is, are, and was. So the, the, so the being verbs, because once you declare something, once I say, hey, I am a certain thing or a certain type of person, I can only become that person. And if I pin you down as, hey, you are a loser, for me, that's how you always show up and you can't show up differently. So I teach how to be very careful how you give structure to the, the language that you have internally because it shapes the outcome of what's possible for you, especially as a leader. If a leader has a, an I am dialogue that's destructured, you can't produce an outcome. And that's why how another leader can come in within two minutes of the other one being fired and change the business because the structure of language of real great leadership shows up very quickly demonstratively outside of the, of the individual. I know it's a weird way to discuss it. So what I look at is the truth of it is be very careful when you use the words, I am something or they are something because you can destroy your team if you browbeat them with the, those being verbs, like you, you are useless. That person can't overcome that. 
And so in the SEAL teams, you're never allowed to browbeat each other. You get it and you get, obviously you get browbeat in training. And then you shut that, that situation down where nobody can tell you who you are. And then in the teams, if you browbeat somebody else, they'll usually just beat you up. And because it's so demonstrative, you'll change the dynamic of war if the people that are collectively trying to fight it browbeat each other with that language. Like, hey, we're screwed. Get out. Sit in the back of the truck. Because don't use language to predetermine this outcome. Because you always feel like you're going to die. And you're very careful that you don't demonstrably say that. If you understand what that what I meant by that, how, how do you, I mean? Is there a pra, I mean, we have thoughts and we have words that come up in our heads that we don't. I do. I've meditated for twenty five years and I still have thoughts that pop into my head that I don't control. And I go, oh, you know, that's probably. So how do you? Is there a practice that you can use to manage some of that? Uh, the monkey mind is always there. If you want to use that analogy, it just becomes irrelevant the more you intentionally. So the practice that I teach is it's a 10 minute section in the morning and at night where you declare who you are using a formula that it's a word formula that has who I am, what my, what my goal is, uh, what I need to accomplish people in my life, how I'm going to accomplish it and why those, so those six statements you have to articulate morning and night. And that really uh, calms down the arbitrary thoughts of we're screwed that always comes up for human beings until you intentionally put it because the only times that are relevant in morning and night, like if you use those points as meditation, you create your day, then you create your night. And most people go to bed tired, which means I'm done. They go to bed with a conversation called I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I can't function. And they prove it overnight. Your body, your brain, your mind wants to be reinforced. And when it goes to sleep, if you give it a negative reinforcement, you're stuffed that night and you wake up exhausted because you proved it to yourself. So those periods of time, morning and night are essential to reiterate and to intentionally create words for the mind to grasp. You're, you're sort of doing an override. Like these are some, there's some natural things you might think because you are tired, but then you do an override and say, these are the six things I'm going to actually focus on and say. Because the brain believes what you tell it. Yep. So be very careful what you tell it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's like the great start snippet for the podcast right there. Your brain believes what you tell it. Be careful. <laughs> in, in, in your book, you refer a lot to your relationship. Uh, you know, and you mentioned earlier that you were going to name the book originally Spartan Wife and that didn't fly. Now, I get the sense that your, your relationship is something you've worked on a lot, thought about a lot. If you wanted to give us some advice or some keys to that fulfilling marriage, what would you say? I, I failed in my first one. So I, I unintentionally had to, I had to create, <laughs> <Me too>. another, <laughs> I had, wow. like I literally had to create another way to look at it because man, I don't want to do that again. And uh, so Stacy and I uh, had to clean slate. She'd been married twice. I'm like we're screwed. I mean, our back, our past is just telling us this is doomed and I had two kids, and but I saw in her something that was uh, admirable. And for a man to admire a woman, I think is to me is rare. And I, I, I want more of that. So we had to sit down and, and create a language and a way to interact with each other that was uh, 
not based on our past indiscretions. And uh, so we came up with, it's a weird thing. And did you try it? And so a, a way to meth- create a method to relate to other, another human being is somebody has to initiate the conversation, but the conversation is I get to listen to her for 10 minutes a day. I have to turn off anything, but listening to how powerful she is. And so it's taken us 15 years of, of practicing this every day. So I listen intentional for 10 minutes. Then I speak intentionally for 10 minutes. And then we have 10 minutes of intimacy every single day. And, and I make my clients go through that. And that is a tragedy. I've not seen people do that. Well, it's 30 minutes, y'all 30 minutes, not that difficult. And you can do it virtually too. But most men struggle with listening to how powerful their wives are. I just say that openly. Now, once you can do that, you transform your relationship with the woman and she gets transformed. And then most people don't really share. Most men don't share with their wives anything relevant other than, yeah, I'm going to go to work today. And I've heard it. 4,000 people, they don't share well. So if you can listen and share real pointed conversations that matter to you and that the other person gets an access to you at that level, and then have some relative intimacy. For me, I have to touch Stacy. If I'm gone, I have to acknowledge her. So if I'm, you know, we do a Skype call or something, I say, hey, you look great or whatever. That's very important that you acknowledge who somebody else is. To me, I'm very touch centered and it's transformative. Most people can't do that. When, when you as a man or a woman can do that 30 minutes a day, you discover in each other something new pretty much every 15 days. <laughs> like, well, I didn't know that. Well, that's cool. Cause I get to be with her at the level that she changes and she gets to not, I, she can't conflict with what I say. And, uh, it's a beautiful way to rediscover each other. And what I see in leadership, when leaders do that, it normally takes them 30 days to do it for three weeks straight or no three months. It takes leaders in the United States three months to accomplish 21 days straight of listening to their spouse. Unbelievable. Once they do that, they're, once it happens, it's osmotic through their business that their business thrives like the next day. They become very patient at work because they realize the people are the people, the people at their work make the money. They don't. So they pay attention to their people a lot more and turnover rate just falls off, falls off. Cause when you get listened to you're, you're transformed human being. I, I went deep on that, but sorry for, sorry for going so far on that. No, no, that, I mean, that resonated in a way that you, you I mean, you couldn't possibly know because of person I, I've discovered in myself in the last two months how I hide. You know, I will not share, uh, but my brother died, so I needed help. And so I forced myself to go and say, listen, Kate, I want, you know, could you just sit with me for 10 minutes? And she didn't, and she's fantastic. And we're closer now than we've ever been because of that vulnerability, because of that openness, because of just sitting face to face. So it's, it's, it just resonates what you're saying. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah and I, I think, ha- sir, no, no, sorry, go ahead. No, please, you. 
Um, no, so what I was going to say is I also think what's interesting is how you describe how that kind of tends to radiate out. Like if you're able to create one relationship like that, that, you know, there is this kind of communication and not hiding and all that stuff that it like sort of makes its way out into the other spheres of life. So I think, I think that's interesting. Well, so that becomes true. All humans are related. That's the truth. It, if it wasn't for the political rhetoric, you wouldn't see the difference in people. Your neighbor and you are uniquely connected. People in Africa and us are uniquely connected. We learn to disconnect it. So once what I found to be true, I, I attack the leaders because when the leaders get it, the whole company gets it. You can't like teach a receptionist something and then have the whole company not and push it down. Uh, I don't know if I said that well, but so to answer your question uh, or to what you alluded to, uh, once you understand that we're all connected and the access point, I don't like the word vulnerability because it's, it does, you don't have to be frail to do that. You don't have to have a problem to encounter to that you share. You share because it's creative. It creates access to something that you didn't already have. And I share with Stacy what's true for me. On Monday, it may be boring. Like, hey, I'm going to go run six miles. And I share relative to what I think is important. I think we have our health that we have to talk about, what we're learning, our business, our relationships, and our spiritual life. Those five things are what I share into. Like, hey, I'm going to go run six miles. Uh, and there's nothing. I just want her to know who I am and what I'm doing. And man, I'm, I'm learning a new running technique. And I'm struggling doing it. Okay. She didn't, she didn't. So, Oh, don't struggle. She just listens. And, uh, Hey, I'm on this. I have to be on a podcast at noon with these people I haven't met. And I'm really interested in learning. So I get, that's what I value. And I have to share what I value and I'm, or I'm struggling trying to figure out the spiritual side of how people are connected to me. And I share that to her. So she shares, Hey, I got to go to the drugstore and pick up blah, blah, blah. I have to take our boy to lifting. Okay. That's who she is and what she's doing today. And I grab her butt and she says, Hey, you smell good. Whatever that is. Now we're uniquely connected and I'm really interested in how her day is going to proceed out. And I can't, she can't decide that she can't tell me not to pursue what I shared and I can't tell her not to. And then once you do that, they're transformed. And then you go, well, you know what, what I'm not doing at work is listening to anybody. I come in like a sheepdog and tell everybody what to do, or I sit in my little box and do my job and it gets worse to do my job. And I'm not efficient at it. And I take eight hours and I really only work two hours of an eight hour day. I'm honest about it. And boy, I would love to want to talk to somebody and listen to somebody at work. And you do that. You're like, oh my God, my boss sat and talked to me for 10 minutes. He understood where I was. And I was able to tell him something that I don't, and I didn't get fired. I'm loyal now forever. And that's so rare that happens at work when the leaders lead at that level. Uh, it's a different ball game because people don't follow leadership. They follow something where my life works. I work with you because my life works. And in the teams, you didn't follow the leadership. You were there because your life was better for having been there. And they can't pay you to do it. It's a terrible environment to live in. 
but why you're there is because your brothers know you and you can share anything with them. And nobody says bad things. They may punch you in the face for being stupid, but you never are rejected from that community. And it's a deep level of love that you never experience everywhere, anywhere else. And that's why you're able to function at a high level. And I think that should be taught to anybody. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, really, really interesting. Um, I wonder if we can just change gears um, kind of to get at the theme of true wealth. So this is a podcast called Mindful Wealth. And one of the questions that always comes up is how do our guests, so how do you, Tom, think about true wealth? What is that to you? Is it financial? Is it spiritual? How might you describe what it is to be truly wealthy? Mm. I have two answers. Uh, the wealth is the third platform of uh, what we do. I have a, a teaching organization where we teach uh, a seminar every month throughout the United States. So it's the third part of a, a five part platform called, and that third part is wealth. I define wealth as the pursuit of what you value and being compensated for that. So you have to value what you pursue and you have to find compensation for it. Otherwise it's a hobby and it doesn't follow under wealth. So that's one aspect of the answer. The other aspect of the answer is you have to pursue those five areas of life to have true wealth. And I, I'm a kind of minor savant where I put mathematical formulas to everything. Uh, wealth, it's a 30-part formula, so a 30X formula. My true wealth formula that I call it, which is interesting. Uh, intellectual on a 30X formula only gives you a 1X of growth. So no matter how much time and energy you pursue uh, learning, it, unless you apply it, it doesn't have a lot of greatness added value to you as a human being, unless you can apply it to the other four areas. So intellectual gives you a one X physical pursuit. The pursuit of my health gives me a four X. The pursuit of wealth gives me a five X. The pursuit of relationships that are on point gives me a seven X and uh, and spiritual pursuit gives me a 13. So true wealth is the, constant day-to-day pursuit of those five pyramids, I call them, and none of them outweigh the other. You have to do them non-negotiable every single day, and you can't just do one. So if you put that into a mathematical formula, you'll find that it's, if I could either be a millionaire by money and have a heart attack and be divorced, or I could have the same articulate accumulated wealth by pursuing that and probably only making $150,000. Like if I have great relationships and I'm healthy and I'm learning and I have some spiritual value that I pursue, my $150,000 translates to me experiencing life at the million dollar level. And it's a visceral feeling when the people that go through the training feel that at the end of it, they're like, wow, I, I feel like I'm at a different place in life because of the value I put on all five areas and you pursue them every day. So two part, uh, not a balanced life, but a non-negotiable pursuit of five areas. And then how I value or how I look at wealth is 
if you're not doing what you, what you value and you're not being compensated for it, uh, it's not real wealth anyway. Like that dollar meant nothing to you, even though you could have a million. So I'll, I'll leave it at that as my, as my description. I, I love I love the equation like that's yeah that's yeah I'm all about I love spreadsheets and how to you know and just putting a putting a weight on those different things and how spirituality is at the top of that weight and relationships are just underneath that and money is actually below both of those I think that's fantastic and I, I would completely uh, uh, agree with that it's beautiful so uh, you know, your book does a a really good job of of outlining a mindset that's honed in very difficult circumstances and um, Terry and I. Uh, think about that in like a framework of Viktor Frankl's experiences in the concentration camps. Very similar. Uh, one of the toughest experiences available uh, to the world. So that being said, it's kind of difficult to read in places because there's ethical questions that come up. Like, mm-hmm. um, so if, if we could get into those. Sure. How do you know you're one of the good guys? Like, how do you know that violence is, uh, serves a purpose, a good, a good purpose. Uh, so that's the Pandora's box of definition. So I don't know if good is a reference to, uh, very difficult times. Uh, so in combat, there's not right or wrong. There's not good or bad. Uh, moral high ground gets people killed. So somewhere you prior to going into hell or bad experiences, you had to have defined what was valuable because in the middle of the experience, uh, it's gray and nebulous, uh, like, uh, being in Auschwitz, that wasn't a definitive moment who people were before defined them. And in the moment you either cascade because your definition of you was irrelevant and it didn't hold water uh, or you, it reaffirmed who you were. So uh, in, in the middle of combat, there is survive. Hopefully you defined who you were before as a seal and a a father and and a husband and all that shenanigans that happened prior to combat. Uh, my job was, I didn't care about the enemy. I had no emotional response to the enemy. My job was to get 22 men back home. And sometimes you have to be uber violent to accomplish that. But in the moment of violence, it's black and white. When you have clarity, dude, I'm going home to my wife. I don't, my way home is through that dude. Sometimes you don't get that choice. And, uh, so in as seals, you get the choice, you can define, you can choose which, which enemy or targets you go on. Cause some are not winnable. You're like, oh, we're all going to die. It's not worth it. We'll just wait a little bit longer. So we've before the mission, you've already decided, uh, you're going to go, go accomplish this. And then when you step onto the bird, what you actually do is you turn, you become a sociopath, you turn off right and wrong. And then when you get off of it, you have to kind of re reintegrate into human society, every mission. Cause in the middle of the mission, if you're defining right and wrong, you're five seconds, 10 seconds behind. And I don't know if that's the right way to, to, to uh, deal with it. Uh, but uh, during crisis and during hell, don't let that define 
the right and wrong of life. And if you're literally, if your your brain is turned on and it's questioning right and wrong, and it's just a moral high ground and you see somebody, uh, a, a guy rape a girl and you're like, man, I don't know if I should shoot him. I don't know if who's right and wrong. You've already defined it before you go in there. So you're just acting on those critical points that you've made to yourself prior to going in which is the advantage of being a SEAL is you've worked this out prior to going into combat. And most people don't have the ability to turn on and off that, that right and wrong conversation. And what you're seeing now is guys that can't turn it back off or turn it back on. So they've turned off, the, they become a sociopath where they're just whack a dude and their heart rate didn't go up and they shot people and they're on, they're being aggressive and then they come back and they can't turn it back on like i need to not do that if i don't kill that person it's okay i i don't need to think about that because i'm back home and what you're seeing is people ruminate with that now it's not as many seals as you would think because you're going through that constantly uh but uh, the only answer i can say is in the moment there's no right and wrong uh afterward uh like we were talking earlier, if you're not, if you're ego driven afterward, you're stuffed because you're going to regret half the things that you did. And you know, hearing your daughter say, dad, why are you gone? Oh man, shoot. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Now my daughter wants me there. Uh, and all that emotional response to everything that you're feeling, it sometimes doesn't have a place. And uh, I, I wish people would understand that differently. Uh, but that's why I feel sorry for uh, National Guard people who don't have training and then go in there into combat. They're still evaluating. I still have, uh, I'm still eating, digesting food I had from home, and then I'm getting shot at, and I'm witnessing things that humans have to process differently. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of, I feel sorry for a lot of people that didn't learn that. But the mind, to answer the mindset question. Uh, the mind wants to connect to other humans. And in the moment, it has to disconnect to pull the trigger. Like it has to look at that other human as nothing. It, it's the only way that, to, that it can function. And you, you have to learn to turn it off and on. It's a terrible thing to say openly in front of somebody. But if you don't, you don't survive. And, if, and then you got to learn to pro reprogram that when you're back into the real world. Mm -hmm. I, so I, 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 I don't know what I was expecting as an answer to that question, but I, I guess like, like something sort of like that, because I think there's one aspect maybe that's situational of like, what do you do to survive when you find yourself in that situation? And like, absolutely the, the time that you spend thinking about stuff is time that you're taking away from your reactions. And when every 15 seconds matters, you can't be mulling over a moral dilemma in your mind. Like I get that. Um, I suppose my question of what I wanted to ask is that, you know, when you pull the plug sort of on the moral compass, if you want to put it that way, um, at what point, like, you know, being an American, I'm actually in Canada, I'm Canadian, um, at what point does your orientation in that make sense? Because let's say the guys on the other side presumably also have families, presumably also have a kind of a history. They're also fighting for something that I guess they believe in. So how or do you take apart the ethics of that and say, you know, how do I end up in this armed conflict and how do I know that I'm on like the right side of that? 
Yeah, that has been a question for approximately 3,000 years. <laughs> uh, and uh, one is as a human body or a, a pool of humans said the SEAL platoon talks about that. So let's talk about what we're going to do, gents, because let's talk about it. Let's openly discuss. Uh, you may not agree with the president. So who has moral conflict with this? And it's an open conversation. Uh, then that becomes, uh, and you've probably heard this or you've written or you've read about it. Uh, if, uh, there's always going to be violence. There's always going to be violence. There's never going to be peace. There's never peace. So if that is true, those two truths always will exist. You can dream that there will be peace in the world. There just never has been. So to hedge against those realities, somebody has to take up the, I don't know what you call it, the take up arms. So SEALs take up arms knowing that they don't, they're not interested in the moral dilemma because somebody has got, got to pick the gun up. If you think being nice is always going to prevent somebody violent, that's, that's crazy. So if you're going to take up arms, how do you do that the best you can? Other than open conversations between humans, that's how we process it. And eventually you just get worn out talking about it. You're like, hey, are we going to go? Or if you don't want to go, don't go. Because we have to go. It's time to go into combat. Uh, hopefully you've had the process happen a bunch of times. So you don't, you're not morally, even though I, the moral compass is weird in the, in the actual firefight. Prior to going in, you try to make better decisions. But once you've launched the platoon, uh, they're not decision makers anymore. They're just going to carry out a predetermined plan. So the moral compass does come in prior to. Do we need to go in this? How many? How much collateral damage are we going to cause? There's 18 on every target we had. We had women and kids. Not once did my guys kill them because I didn't make it a conflict. We're just going to wrap them all together. We're going to we're going to get 100 prisoners. We're not going to let people walk around while we're out there. The army wouldn't do that, and the Marine Corps would let them walk around. That makes it a moral dilemma because everybody's then trying to threaten you. So we would wrap up 150 people, women and kids. We'd feed them. We'd let them cook. We had people holding security on them. And then the enemy was always men coming after you. It was very clear how we, how we functioned it. Uh, I, I don't have an answer for what's right and wrong. I appreciate the fact that uh, there are humans over there that have lived there in the mountains for thousands of years. They hadn't seen white people. We were the first white people they'd seen. I was like, wow, it's cool. Uh, and then there were some bad things that you witnessed. So there was always the turn on and off switch that you had to have. And I don't have an answer to the right and wrong. I just operationally, when, when, the, when the SEAL platoon gets feet on the ground, they're no longer worried about it. That, that discussion happened before. And then when they come back, they have to be able to process what they did with their family. Like you eventually have to think, like if you were my wife, I'm like, I want to be able to tell you what I did. And I want you to be able to hear what I did without making me right and wrong. So that's, that's really the weird part of it. And then you have societal issues. And my thing is violence will always be there. And I don't want to be on the receiving end of violence without having training. I, I, I wonder if, if part of the 
establishing it's not it's not the rightness but it's your connection to your family your nation your seal team that sort of establishes hey we're moving forward and it's a choice between that guy facing you and you so many other guests also speak of this connection as a source of meaning um it's my sense that focusing on certain types of connect connectedness fosters peace understanding and other types you know placing you know, ethnic, religious, national, clan identities fosters conflict. So, can you comment on where those connections, you know, derive? Oh man, that I think is the best phrased question about humanity. Uh, uh, what I said earlier is there's no distinct difference between any human and another human. Uh, you may look differently. My kids are from me and they look different. They're not different to me. They are one with me. They're a part of me forever because I hold that distinction inside. And that internal distinction uh, should actually be taught. The only separation that can be happened uh, that can be had is if I distinguish you as different than me, that happens internally. If I say that you and I are not, nothing separate other than you live somewhere and then, you know, Terry lives in Canada. Cool. I, my formative years were in Ontario. Like I defined who I was as a man canoeing and fishing in Ontario going, this is me. I use that language. So I immediately have an affinity to you that I've created without even knowing you. The moment you say Canada, I'm like, hell yes, I get it. Like, it's great, but that happens inside. And the only reason people in combat function well together is they're there for their buddy. Country never shows up in, in, in combat. Like I didn't give a shit that I was a United States citizen. They weren't there. I wasn't even fighting for my family because they weren't there. The guy next to you becomes uh, the most interesting, important person in the world that you're fighting to help him and he's fighting to help you. You can't see the other 10 guys or the other 20 guys. It's just, you know, Bill and George, boy, this is it. This is us, man. And uh, so that connectivity arises from inside and it can, you're the one responsible for that level of human uh, interaction and it happens inside. If I don't like you, that's my problem. That's not because you're black or green or purple. It's not because you did something wrong. It's because I defined what you, who you are and what you look like as something that I don't appreciate. That's my problem. It's not a societal issue. It's my problem. And I, everybody should just take responsibility that the enemies that they have are theirs. It's not, there are black guys in the teams. I didn't distinguish them as unique or different or weird. I thought everybody was weird, so it was cool. And I, I just don't see anything. I, I didn't grow up in a society in the SEAL teams where there was uh, racism. Like, it didn't exist. As long as you could do the work and you loved each other, bring it. You're part of the team. And it's just I can't fathom how it got so off the rail, except politics is that way. But I, I've trained with... I've trained my enemy. Literally, the guy I was shooting five days ago is now somebody that you train. You got to switch that off. Okay, you're committed now. You're a different factor for me. 
And that became interesting seeing that like, wow, didn't we just shoot his dad? Why is he in training? It was a, it was a weird thing to see as a kid. And, uh, and, but all that happens internally. And that is the truth about human beings is there's no distinct difference between anybody other than what we say internally about that other person. And it's up to us and nobody else. And that will resolve all this. So sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but I find that so fascinating, like coming from somebody who's, you know, pulled the trigger on people. Because at the on the one hand, it's like you're acknowledging like the ultimate connectedness of everybody. And on the other hand, at times you're able to switch it off. I mean, I, I find that paradox like just really interesting. And so does my wife. So <laughs> you're, you're in good company. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, I, I wish I could articulate it better. Uh, the, the combat was simple to me. It was black and white. It's the only time in life there's just black and white. There's no grayness, none. You either survived or you did not. There's difficulty, but there's no uh, grayness in decision-making. And that's why, if you've ever heard why people go back to combat, because it's the only time in life where shit makes sense. Like, it's so clear. And it's just a dangerous place to be. Uh, and uh, I, I, I find it fundamentally lack of uh it's not exhausting all at all to be in a combat situation there's only time in life where everything was perfect it was beautiful to me it was peace which is the weirdest paradox ever yeah i don't i don't even know where to go with that yeah i, me I neither. I'm sorry I brought that up. <laughs> just seems um, paradoxical uh yeah yeah does seem paradoxical um but you know acknowledgement of where you are but to Tom, like, th- like I want to just thank you for being willing to be so honest with us, us about this stuff. Because, like, I was, you know, as I was putting these questions together, I was like, wow, like, okay, I'm really going to ask him this stuff. And, like, I'm I'm really enjoying the conversation because I feel like there's, like, just a level of honesty there that's, like, really good. Yeah, it's cool. Um, And so I guess I wanted to kind of, like, poke at something else Um, with, you know, human history, like if you look at the statistics of, you know, violence and, you know, you, you kind of say you think that violence is always going to be there and you'd rather not be on the receiving end of it. I think if you look at human history, we are tending towards less violence. So I, you know, I, I read some kind of studies about, you know, a few thousand years ago, what the chance of was of violent death, be it from war, be it from like violence, you know, among neighbors, whatever it is. And like humanity has sort of been progressing towards higher levels of like integration and connection and also, I guess, rule of law. And that that has, you know, moved us away from life being nasty, brutish and short. And I wonder, you know, um, I'm not so familiar with Sparta. I, I've, I've spent a bit more time on the Vikings. And I know that, like, let's say the Vikings had this very, you know, violence-oriented religion, really. Because for them to get to Valhalla, you the best way to get there is to die in battle. And so what this belief system and, like, these practices do is they kind of create, like, a celebration of violence. And... It might make sense, perhaps, at a time where the world is a more violent place. And then, you know, my interpretation of that was that kind of, okay, then you have Christianity, then you have this kind of, like, more peaceful mindset that comes in, which turn the other cheek and, you know, these kind of um, belief systems that maybe move us towards more peace and less violence. 
And, you know, you kind of reference Sparta a lot. And I wonder what you might have to say about that. Like, do you not think that if we resurrect maybe these kind of like, you know, Spartan or Viking ethics, are we not kind of celebrating violence as opposed to moving society away from it? We'd have to define our terms of violence. Uh, what would you define violence as? I mean, I would define it as some kind of a, something that would result in death by, you know, another human being's hand in a, he has a weapon in his hand and I end up with my head smashed in. Like, I guess that would be like my absolute base definition of violence. Uh, so the taking of something that is not yours from somebody who has it, that's a violent act. You're taking uh, the life of somebody or you're using violence to take over something that it's not necessarily yours, like another country, or you're taking the wife or you're taking his booty, you know, his whatever he's uh, acquired. And you're doing a very sh uh, curt, short act that he can't counter or she can't counter. So that could be called a violent and the reason why I'm defining this is because uh, uh, the one thing that is missing in, in the analogy is uh, we progressed out of a, a, a tribal society because uh, we were all tribes and then we had technological advances and then we had more technological advances that allowed life to last a little longer because Diseases got reduced uh, because the underpinning of all that simply was uh, earn it. Build something that's better than before. That earn it mentality started about 2,000, maybe 2,500 years ago. That you weren't born bad. You could earn your way out of things even though you're disabled, which is the teaching of Christ, you can get up and move. Your sins don't define you. So that earn the next step of your life. So that earn it mentality is the definitive crossover between what you're thinking is violent and not violent. I suggest that there's still utter violence now that is subtle so racism is the most violent minded thing you could ever put in front of somebody. It's very violent. It makes people do activity that they don't inherently do. That creates violence. Just the wording of that. We are different. is very violent, but earn your way. Nothing violent about that. And that was what happened in the United States. We're going to earn our, our, we're going to start a new life here. Called, we're going to govern ourselves. We're going to earn our spot in the world. And we made a hundred thousand mistakes doing it. We killed the Indians. Got it. There's a lot of bad things that happen in everything that people do. But the one thing that you can't hear about because it would overcome all this weird conversation of how violence is what one thing or the other is you never hear earn it. You hear that you deserve it. That's the most violent minded thing you can ever tell your kid is you deserve to be a winner. Hey, earn it. Whatever you can do, you can do whatever you want. If you want to be a ball player, you want to play football, you want to be the prime minister of Canada, earn your way there. You don't deserve anything. Nothing that you, nothing that anybody else has, you should ever try to acquire. So earn your way. 
you don't have one leg, find another way to live. You didn't earn the right to take money from somebody else out. So you don't, or you don't deserve somebody else's money. So I look at it entirely differently. Uh, I, I look at violence as a, uh, an act that steals from somebody else. And it doesn't have to be a fist or a bullet. Uh, eventually, that usually happens. So when people can't tolerate what's going on, they take up arms and they overcome the problem that's in front of them. Because violence defines things immediately. It's a terrible thing to say, but you like, even when you get in a fight, uh, getting punched in the face makes a huge difference to you. Like, Ooh, I'm not going to say that anymore. And dying solves a lot of problems. And uh, it's a terrible thing to say, uh, but it's enacted differently and it's understood differently because our, our society doesn't want to be in the real conversation of what happens in war because it didn't happen to me boy, I was never in war. Go talk to the ones in war because anytime there's conflict in Canada, the, I spent a lot of time with the Canadian special forces. They're awesome dudes. I think everybody should know them. You should know what you're asking them to do. When you shut the border down, it's a very violent act. You're causing businesses to shut down all that stuff. What I is what I call violence. And just the fact that you have a gun doesn't make you a violent character. It makes you uh, a, a player in the game. If you have a gun, now I'm a player. I will never have violence perpetrated, perpetrated to me because I have the ability to enact violence back. That puts me on the table of being a powerful human being. It's a weird way to look at it. Uh, and uh, I know I went off track there, but that was a very complicated question you asked. Mm-hmm. No, it was it was a complicated question. And, you know, th uh, Tom, I really want to just thank you again for uh, being willing to go on this adventure with us. Um, because I know, like, for me, he, like, you know, having this exchange and like, that's the beauty. Or I know for me and Jonathan of doing this podcast is like, we don't want to only have easy conversations. We don't want to only talk to people who have the same opinions as we do, or the same life experiences or the same perspective on things. Um and so, like, I want to really thank you for, you know, taking the time to talk to us and, and just being really authentic uh, in your answers. Um, yeah, so uh, I think we want to, we're going to wrap up the episode slowly. Um, so unless you have anything else that you'd like to add? Be brave. Like, everybody's listening, to, especially, you know, mindfulness and wealth. The one conversation that doesn't come up well in that space is be brave in what you do. Like stand your ground a little more as a leader and especially with being mindful is don't sway all the time. Sometimes it's better to be brave and hold your ground and let your mind be a little more solid than it is to be flexible. And uh, the pursuit of wealth uh, is a brave conversation to have. And uh, I, I would, want to leave it at that thanks tom much appreciated yep yes yeah, so thank you very much tom for taking the time to, to talk with us today and um that's it thank you all thanks for listening to the mindful wealth podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did remember to give us a rating and leave a comment subscribe and share you can find jonathan at mindful.money and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. 
Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord, are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.